Welcome to Culture Cryptids, a horror podcast for horror fans who didn't go to film school. Well, how about that? We made it to 10 episodes. I mean, we're making it to 10 episodes. I, what's the difference? I don't know. Maybe this never gets posted. Maybe nobody ever hears it. Then it'll be haunted. I don't like the first part of that. I like the haunted part, yeah, though. <laughs> yeah, you're real into the hauntedness. Yes. Well, hello and welcome to Culture Cryptids, everyone. I'm JD. I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm only three weeks away from being able to spit in someone's mouth again. I'm Corey, the other co-host, and that is an image I will never be able to get out of my head, and I'm unhappy about this fact. My job is done, then. Why are you like this? Why am I like this? I don't know. I keep asking you and hope that you'll give me an answer someday. No, it needs to be an eternal question that is never answered. Gross. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. That's just gross. Well, something... I hope everyone else's day is going better than mine is. <laughs> well, something that's not gross is we are coming out of winter. It's I said winter very strangely. You did. That was a very strange winter. <laughs> We're coming out of winter mm-hmm. and it's starting to get warm again. That's right. We have passed the first official day of spring, which yes. means We're coming up on Possibly travel season. Yeah. Maybe, possibly. It might happen. I mean, I was going to go with Easter first, but oh. yeah, traveling too. That's fine. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking spring break. You just really, yeah, you. I'm the, ready to get the fuck out of the house. I think we all are. Yeah. I think that that's a very common uh, sentiment right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go too far, though. Okay. I do want to issue a correction about our previous episode. Oh, no. So in that episode, when we talk about the Invisible Man, I make reference to quote unquote horror blue balls. And in retrospect, I should have called them boo balls. And I hit myself in the face because I didn't do that. Go ahead and say it again. Why am I like this? Just I thought for a minute this was going to be something real and I should have known better. It is very real and it is very serious. Boo balls. How many times do you? Okay, no, we're done. done. No more. (laughs) You can't. You can't do that. So yeah, it's warm. The world is starting to wake up again. We might be able to go out and like maybe go to a beach, hit a swimming pool, go to an amusement park, eat a churro, have some cotton candy. I'm gonna keep going until you stop. I fucking love churros, man. (laughs) I'm sorry, I got really distracted when you were talking about churros. I got excited. Churros, I know how you feel about that. I have an abiding love of churros. Yeah, you can do all those things. Sure, when you go traveling, you know what else you can do when you go traveling? What you can die. Ooh, horribly. That is a thing that can happen when you travel. Yeah, yeah. So we thought it might be fun to talk about some films that um, feature some themes of. Having ter- terrible stuff happen to you when you're That's traveling. Right. Death by travel. Death That's by what travel. we're all about today. Well, more specifically, once you've reached your destination and something awful happens to you. Not necessarily. This is not hordophobia, which is the irrational fear of traveling. This is once you're already there and something shitty happens to you. Right. Did you just like just drop that in there with your big brain? Sure oh. did. Sure. Yeah. How do you say that again? Hordophobia. Hodophobia. Hodophobia. Today I learned. <laughs> so there are a lot of tropes and 
things that are related to traveling and terrible things happening and kind of where that awfulness comes from. Mm -hmm. And we've picked out three that we wanted to focus on kind of in depth. Right. But we do want to make a note that kind of our, our great fears of the unknown and traveling aren't anything new in horror. A lot of the movies that we're going to be talking about today have are within the last 20 years because we, we understand that a lot of people have seen the classics, but we want to bring in some things maybe people haven't seen as much. But it's really interesting to note that this is not a new concept in horror. And it's not a new concept like in classic horror either. Because the earliest film that I could find, and I could be wrong, so if I am, you know, someone correct me. You can issue a correction on a future I can episode. issue a correction on a future like episode. Like balls. No, we're not talking about that. So the earliest film that I could find that kind of explores this premise is the 1934 classic The Black Cat. Now, this isn't a retelling of the Edgar Allan Poe story, which is kind of weird that it shares the name with it. But it does star Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Ooh. And it is the first of eight films they made together due to a studio contract. The premise is that American honeymooners in Hungary are trapped in the home of a Satan-worshipping priest when the bride is taken there for medical help following a road accident. I haven't seen this one. I really need to track it down and watch it. But the the story seems to be more about the psychological horror than it is following the trend of the, the monster movies. Cause back in the thirties, there's so many great that's monster what, movies. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an interesting kind of like psychological horror that was, that showed up in the time, which I think is why it sort of was so popular. It was the biggest box office hit for universal pictures for that year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it has a wide pedigree of horrible travel stories in <laughs> horror films. And as we'll get into, there's some, even earlier examples of some of not necessarily films, but stories yeah, that deal with these yeah. things as well. This is a very popular genre or trope, if you will. Are your bags packed? Can we go ahead and get started? Are you ready to? All my bags are packed. I'm Got ready to go. Cause I'm leaving on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I do what I can. Sometimes uh, I like to throw throw these little bits at you for you. <laughs> that made my night. That made my night. We're done. I can we can stop the recording now. So, <laughs> all right. Um, I've got my everything ready. I've got my neck pillow. Let's go ahead and um and get going. God, you're old. Let's go. Visit beautiful Slovakia. Slovakia. Beautiful castles, friendly villagers, great beer, and most certainly there are no torture clubs where you can purchase a victim for the right price. Come to Slovakia. Slovakia. Let's be honest. You can't even touch this topic unless you're willing to talk about Hostel. Yes, Hostel, a film that neither one of us had seen, that we watched on the Peacock app, <laughs> that had very strangely placed commercials. So very odd. we may not have gotten the entire movie. Who knows? I feel <laughs> like we did just based on what I had read about the film afterwards. And also because the pacing didn't seem to be to suffer from it, although it was kind of weird. But yeah, neither of us seen this movie. And in part, I think for both of us was because of this film's reputation which we're going to touch on. Oh, definitely. We'll definitely talk about that. But first, let's talk about the movie itself. And I'm sure, JD, let's talk about your favorite part, the IMDb description. The IMDb. So, Hostel from 2005, the IMDb description, 
Three backpackers head to a Slovak city that promises to meet their hedonistic expectations with no idea of the hell that awaits them. I think that's pretty succinct and a pretty good way, although it does kind of cut out the what is the twist, which is not good. I think it's good. I don't know. It's not really a twist, though. <laughs> if you've seen any marketing about this you know film, yeah, you know yeah. what's coming. But this film was written and directed by Eli Roth, who at the time had only done Cabin Fever. And it was actually Cabin Fever that got him noticed by his one of his favorite directors, Quentin Tarantino, who helped executive produce this films. And then now they are buddies who are in each other's movies. And Quentin Tarantino is even in it. He's in the very beginning whenever the people in Amsterdam are yelling at them outside the hostel. He's one of the people up in the windows. I did not catch yeah. that. Nice catch. I didn't even see that. But yeah, so Tarantino produced this film and really worked with Roth to let his kind of vision be whatever it was. And so starring in the film, we have Jay Hernandez as Paxton. Now, Jay Hernandez, you might not recognize as um, Magnum P.I. in the new Magnum P.I. reboot. <laughs> so glad you brought that up. I had to. I had to. I thought it was delightful. <laughs> and he's also Diablo in Suicide Squad. Yes. And he also had was in one season of The Expanse as well for the sci-fi fans out there. And he plays Paxton, who is kind of the pushy driving force behind most of kind of the story as it moves forward. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's that, that part. And then you have Derek Richardson playing Josh, who is kind of our soft boy of the group. Yeah. And he is in that dumb and dumber prequel. Yeah. That was like the kind of one of the few things that yeah. he had done afterwards. And some people just choose not to go into acting. So I don't know what his you know story is, but yeah, he, he's soft boy who is kind of, on this trip after a recent breakup that's very nebulous and they're looking to get laid with the foreign ladies. That's, that's it. So along this way, they meet Ollie who's played by Ethor Gudjensen. It's an Icelandic, it's an Icelandic name. name. I'm very sorry. I tried very hard. I just want you to know how hard I tried. I, it, I appreciate it. But yeah, he's an Icelandic traveler that they meet up with and they just start hanging out with him. They don't really know anything about him, but he comes and joins their, their group. So they start off like we, we open in Amsterdam and of course they're seeing all of the hedonistic treats that that city has mm-hmm. to offer. And in the hostel that they're staying at, one of the other individuals turns them on to a place outside of uh, Bratislava in Slovakia, where apparently the women there will do anything with yeah. anyone, especially if you're American, especially if you're American. So of course they head there directly. Of course, <laughs> immediately they just pack up and go and are the most, ridiculous amounts of Americans you can be throughout the ent- this entire path. But yeah, the entire first, I think, act and a half of this movie, I would say, is them just doing dumb American tourism stuff. It's so it's such an odd setup for a film because nothing happens for like, what, 45 minutes? It feels like it's moving at a breakneck pace, but nothing is actually happening because yeah. it's all just a bunch of stupid boy stuff is what it is. <laughs> a stupid boy stuff and then like... An inane amount of tits. Yeah. Like so much tits. There's, n- I don't mind nudity in films. This is not what I'm complaining about. But this was so much unnecessary nudity for literally no purpose at all. It except didn't, for nudity. Except to be nudity. And it didn't have anything to do with the story because you could have had the same story with like maybe one or two of these shots, not the dozens and dozens of them. So when I say like gratuitous nudity, I really do mean like, huh, did you just pay them to 
to be topless and that's why you had to put it in. I'm very confused about what this has to do with things. It's one of those things where it's like, well, we, yeah, we shot it. We have to use it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, again, I watched all of Game of Thrones. Like I'm accustomed to a lot of nudity. This was excessive. <laughs> Just saying something yeah, based on your the, standards. Based on my standards, that's excessive. From beginning to end, this film is a very like Roth movie. Like you can kind of tell if you've seen any of his films that this is kind of his style. Because the entire premise, if you if you haven't seen it, obviously these are spoilers. Is that even if you haven't seen this movie, you probably you know what the twist you know the story. Is. This story yeah. is such a culturally important horror film for a lot of reasons, and that's why we chose to talk about it despite having not seen it ourselves. It is basically the premise is that there is like an elite hunting club of like bored, rich, psychotic people that basically bid on foreign travelers from around the world. And the the club will kidnap them and sell them to the highest bidder based on whatever criteria they have for that person to then torture, maim, and murder at their leisure. However they want to. Because we do have a scene towards the end of it where there is obviously an American, a a rich Mm -hmm. American tourist who is debating if he should do it quickly or slowly. And (laughs) that scene is Mm -hmm. just... Yeah, because he's talking like it's completely normal. And he's yeah. like, well, how did you do it? Like, oh, I just don't know what I want to do with this. Like, this seems like a great opportunity. And it, it really does come down to this kind of, yeah, weird scenario that you could only really find in a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, so, it, you know, everyone knows what the twist is. Mm-hmm. They're, they're tortured. And, of course, we only have our lone survivor who get, who gets away and then does get to enact somewhat of revenge. Yeah, but... I think one of the reasons that this movie is so weird for me is that again, the first 45 minutes are just the setup of it. And that that last 45 minutes are kind of the payoff, I guess, of the, the actual horror part that comes in. But with only three characters that you are named kind of named it. Well, fourth, if you count, uh, what's her name? Kana, I think the, I think so, the yeah. Japanese mm-hmm. girl, four named characters and Kana isn't even a character. She's just there for basically cannon fodder. She's there to provide more suspense at the end, like yeah. to create a more suspenseful situation. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't really serve like a purpose for as a person, just as a plot point, but they kill one character like completely off screen. So you don't see that death. And then they kind of go into the torture aspect of the other two somewhat. And I will say for being a film that's based on being the, the founder, one of the founders, I should say, cause Saul came first of being the founder of the torture porn genre. This is the film that coined that they coined the term for. And of course it was applied to saw in Mm -hmm. retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. They applied like you created this term for this film. There's not that much gratuitous violence on screen. I was expecting so much more. Yeah. Just based on that, because in saw you do have an immense amount of uh, immense amount of gore, but Mm -hmm. this like, felt kind of tame a little it, bit. It was. And I think that's interesting yeah. because I, I don't think this is like a criticism of the film either. It's just kind of a note to be like for a movie that had such a reputation for being extreme and violent, the violence does happen, but you kind of see the aftermath of it or you kind of see bits and pieces and hints of it. So you don't actually go into it with being like, here's the moment of the torture it's hinted at, which is, is effective. And I think that's one of the most effective things they do in the movie is building that suspense. Well, and I think that comes from in in reading up on some of the things in regards to the movie that uh, Roth thought he was sure it was going to get uh, like an NC-17 rating. Mm -hmm. um, And it was actually 
not a lot of countries didn't want to show it. But yeah. here in the United States, he didn't have that much of a hard time getting an R. And he attributes it to the fact that he filmed a lot of the violence in what he called like a, an operatic style mm-hmm. so that it is more kind of implied and grand. Like it's one of those where your mind fills it in type situations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of times with horror, that's the best approach to go with. And that is a very, in many cases, a very Roth sensibility when it comes to that things, because Roth is Eli Roth is a guy who understands how horror movies work. He gets it on paper and he has such a great knowledge of films over time. And he's just, you know, brilliant. If you want to talk horror, listening to the guy talk about horror, he's very well educated. He's definitely done a bunch of research and he knows all about the B movies that he, and the throwbacks to the earlier era and all these things he's trying to replicate. But I just don't feel like he can quite get the feeling and the sensation that he's trying to replicate in these movies. But that's just my opinion on Eli Roth. I know there's a lot of people who are huge fans of him and I, I don't want to sit here and say, well, you're wrong for liking him because everyone has their own preferences. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, and I think we do have to give it credit for this kind of being a crossover hit where like these type of movies previously would yeah. have just been for dedicated horror fans. This actually was big with just ma- like major audience, like, you know, the audiences like broad audiences at, at large so much so that it cost $4.8 million to make this movie mm-hmm. and it grossed over 80 million. And that's incredible. I mean, that kind of success is, is just incredible, especially for a movie that was, has been seen as kind of decisive divisive in a lot of communities too. just for, Oh, is it good? Is it bad? That kind of conversation has been happening since it released, but it was clearly successful. So good job for him. So much so that it knocked <laughs> The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe out of the top spot at the box office mm-hmm. in its theatrical release. And then again when it came out on DVD. Yeah, that's that's wild. And and I do attribute some of its success to the fact that Roth knows how horror movies work. And especially he knows how to frame one. And there's a lot of things that like I actually really appreciated watching this movie and and some things that were frustrating because the characters are so unlikable. They are so unlikable. And as they travel through this European city, it's just, oh my God. Like, like there are every bad stereotype about American travelers. And I know this is on purpose. Like Roth absolutely did this on purpose. But the problem is, is he spends so much time with how unlikable they are. I'm like, I'm done. Like, I don't need this amount of time with them. I know I don't you like don't them. Care. You and don't like, care. And the one who's, who makes it out and who survives is the shittiest of all. Yeah, of them. yeah he and, is. And so like, it's not even like he's learned a lesson. Like, There's... I don't even get that feeling with it. Mm-mm. And and I think it's interesting to note that with these characters, the way that he paints them, like he paints the Americans in like awful, awful light. But he also paints the other side of it. Like, again, we're in Slovakia. Yeah. And he paints that culture in a way like intentionally paints it to be yes. scarier than it actually is. Yeah. He, he has the whole, like the gangs of roving children that are hanging out that are horribly violent. As the story progresses, you have everyone around every corner is trying to screw you over. Even the fact that the, the hot girls are getting paid to roofie their drinks and drag them off so that they can be murdered. There's so much, like so much, so many things to fear about these, this other country and all this other stuff. And I think that that's really interesting because he does paint Americans like, Oh, he goes out of his way for them to be a sexist and racist and super homophobic, like yeah, overtly. Ho- and I just remember being like, man, this movie was made in like 
2005. Like, wow, that's like dropping, you know, they, but I, I think that's on purpose. And I do think that's intentional. And I don't want to be like Roth is a bad filmmaker for showing his bad characters as having bad, rude and horrible traits because they're not great people, but it is like, that's a lot guys. <laughs> so where did the idea for this, this particular story, this film come from? <laughs> According to Eli Roth, the story came from a conversation he had with with one of his like film critic buddies where the guy was like, man, I saw this website and the website was basically a supposed like murder hotel in Thailand where you could pay to kill someone for $10,000. So they put a price on a human life, supposedly in this website. And Roth looked into it and he says that he found the website and his original plan was to do a documentary about it, but that he... he realized that it would require him giving them a credit card. And he was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't blame him. That seems like, yeah. It's a lot of money and I don't want, to, how does that charge I mean, even come through on your car? Also, he's clearly smarter than his characters because yeah. they make stupid decision after stupid decision. So good on you, Roth, for not making that decision. I also, I thought it was funny that with this particular website and the service they offered, they wanted to make it very clear that all of the people you were killing were volunteers. Like they volunteered to do yeah. this. I'm like, that uh, seems a little sus. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I believe that, but yeah, like, but the idea that there are people that were rich enough to be bored enough that they would seek out this that, kind of to experience get that thrill. to get that thrill. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, the most dangerous game, like all over again, that's what you're seeing there. So I, I liked that. <sighs> he did kind of have this idea of this elite upper class that was just obviously, I mean, and, they, and he paints the guy who does it. It's just sort of like, this is a normal guy that you'd be like hanging out with and then find out that he was so bored that he was like, Oh, I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how to murder somebody. Oh gosh. Like, should I just make it fast or should I draw it out? And you're like, yeah, all right. Everyone knows that guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do all Everybody know that person. Like a guy like that. So in researching this, mm -hmm. I found... Is this a list? And no, this is an edito oh, okay. the editorial I found on the 10th anniversary of Hostel. Mm. Talking about what what the movie was supposed to be about. So, mm -hmm. of course, you just told us that Roth based it on this murder hotel yeah. where you pay 10K to go shoot someone in the head. <laughs> so this editorial stated that Hostel is about 9-11. So I want to read this to you. And I want to get your thoughts. I want your thoughts afterwards. So this is from the editorial. Okay. Paxton, our main character, represents the United States pre, during, and post 9-11. He was relatively innocent and excited about the future while traveling <laughs> through Europe. Okay. Then he was attacked and maimed in the factory. And in the end, he managed to emerge victorious, defeating the man responsible for his suffering. Yet he still couldn't go back to how he was before. Too much had changed for him. Well, that is a reach. That is, um, I mean, did, uh, wow. Um, <laughs> I like, there's so many things you could say about that. And just being like, first of all, Paxton is like a shitty asshole. Yeah, who's not there's the no least innocence. Bit, there's no innocence. He's not naive. He's the one through the entire movie. <laughs> that's just like, let's get laid bros, bros, bros. Let's get laid. And then when, when the other guy who, and that's the thing that I kind of like about the film is that uh, Josh is set up to be the main character because he is the kind of naive one who's like his own sense of morals are like, I really don't want to like hook up with the girl in a brothel, even though he's like, he's still shitty about it. Cause it's like, Oh, like it might be a slutty girl. And like, you know, don't be mean to sex workers. Don't be an asshole. These guys were all assholes, 
But even then, like, he's just like, I just don't feel comfortable or I don't want to do this. Or we should go look for Ollie. He's the missing guy who's decapitated in a building somewhere. We should go look for him. And like Paxton's over here like, no, man, like he's fine. I'm sure he just didn't come back. It's fine. Like we're not, we didn't make plans or anything. It's like you did, you did make plans. What? You just really want to get laid. Like, okay. I understand you've only known this guy for a few days, but still have a little bit more care than that. You you all have been traveling yeah. through countries together. <laughs> But like, I, I just don't understand how it's like he emerges like victorious and better to be like, but 9-11. And I'm like, you know what? How did you get there? Are you like, I appreciate that level of reach. I have to salute it. Like that is, <sighs> that is, I mean, editorials going to editorial. So you got to come up with something, I guess. And that was sure was something. I think that's a good place to leave <laughs> that particular. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, yikes. Yikes. But yeah, Hostel definitely was the kind of... It's the template for... Yeah, yeah Hostel was a template for a lot of other films because you had, like, the next year you had Turistas come out, which is literally about an underground organ-stealing organization from Brazil that kidnapped tourists and kidnapped specifically American tourists because they deserved it. That That's it, like, that they were targeting American tourists because... I mean, they're not wrong. Well, <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> So that came out a year later and then you had some other kind of like, of course the torture porn genre has kind of progressed on, especially in that, like it was like a good, like seven or eight year period where you just got a ton of those movies. Well, I mean, there were three, there were three hostile three movies hostels, yeah. being involved with the first two and then not with the third one. Right. And you had something very similar um, that came out the same year. Wolf Creek was the Australian one. And that's about a serial killer stalking backpackers in the Australian outback which is also really brutal <laughs> and a dark film too. And is, uh, Oh yeah, there's a lot. And that one is vaguely based off of a true story for the, there's actually, there is, there was a backpack murderer named, uh, Ivan Malat. who was, that was his like serial killer title that would pick people up and give them rides across the outback and then murder them. So that's where they got the idea for his name is, I think Mick in the, the film and like that movie got a sequel and also has a TV series now. Yes. It's on Shutter. Super popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen the TV series, but I have seen the movies, but yeah, th- there's a whole host of just copycats and imitators. But I think one of the things I do want to say in a lot of those like copycat imitators, and I'm not specifically talking about like Wolf Creek in this, cause that's a different kind of travel horror, but a lot of them kind of missed the purpose of hostel and what hostel was trying to do and focused on the, Oh, it was super gory and was successful for that. When I don't think the success of the film had as much to do with the gore as it did to do with like the storytelling right. kind of angles and the subversion of who lives and specifically how, because there's a lot of, again, the, the fear of traveling that we're going to discuss as we go through this a lot more, but yeah, that inherent fear of the unknown and the fear of travel really come into play into hostel. The other movies you mentioned in this one, it's very focused on our fear of other individuals that we don't know as strangers that would do things to us. So I wanted to see if, if there was something that was kind of older or predated this. And in talking about it, I, in the back of my head, I remembered, I think that there is a story in one of the scary stories to tell in the dark books that deals with a travel situation mm-hmm. and, kind of a life being upended and not knowing what's going on. And there is. Yeah. Well, I think that's 
funny because there's always a scary story to tell in the dark story <laughs> about for any, everything. everything, any situation. So what is this one? So this is from Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones, Ooh. collected and retold by Alvin Schwartz with drawings by Stephen Gamble, yep. which is all roots and drips and stuff. So this particular story is called Maybe You Will Remember. Mrs. Gibbs and her 16-year-old daughter, Rosemary, arrived in Paris on a hot morning in July. They had been on a vacation and were now returning home. But Mrs. Gibbs did not feel well, so they decided to rest in Paris for a few days before going on. The city was crowded with tourists. Still, they found a place to stay at a good hotel. They had a lovely room overlooking a park. It had yellow walls, a blue carpet, and white furniture. As soon as they unpacked, Mrs. Gibbs went to bed. She looked so pale that Rosemary asked to have the hotel's doctor examine her. Rosemary did not speak French, but fortunately, the doctor spoke English. He took one look at Mrs. Gibbs and said, Your mother is too sick to travel. Tomorrow, I will move her to a hospital, but she needs a certain medicine. If you go to my home for it, it will save time. The doctor said he did not have a telephone right now. Instead, he would give Rosemary a note for his wife. The hotel manager put Rosemary in a taxi and, in French, told the driver how to find the doctor's house. It will only take a little while, he told her, and the taxi will bring you back. But as the driver slowly drove up one street and down another, it seemed to take forever. At one point, Rosemary was sure they had gone down the same street twice. It took almost as long for the doctor's wife to answer the door, then get the medicine ready. As Rosemary sat on a bench in the empty waiting room, she kept thinking, Why can't you hurry? Please hurry. Then she heard a telephone ring somewhere in the house. But the doctor had told her he didn't have a telephone right now. What was going on? They drove back as slowly as they had come, crawling up one street and down another. Rosemary sat in the back seat filled with dread. Her mother's medicine clutched in her hand. Why was everything taking so long? She was sure the taxi driver was going in the wrong direction. Are you going to the right hotel? She asked. He didn't answer. She asked again, but still he didn't reply. When he stopped for a traffic light, she threw open the door and ran from the cab. She stopped a woman on the street. The woman did not speak English, but she knew someone who did. Rosemary was right. They had been driving in the wrong direction. When she finally got back to the hotel, it was early evening. She went up to the desk clerk who had given them their room. I'm Rosemary Gibbs, she said. My mother and I are in room 505. May I please have the key? The clerk looked at her closely. You must be mistaken, he said. There is another guest in that room. Are you sure you are at the right hotel? He turned to help someone else. She waited until he was finished. You gave us that room yourself when we arrived this morning, she said. How could you forget? He stared at her as if she had lost her mind. You must be mistaken, he said. I have never seen you before. Are you sure you are in the right hotel? She asked to see the registration card they had filled out when they arrived. It's June and Rosemary Gibbs, she said. The clerk looked in the file. We have no card for you, he said. You must be in the wrong hotel. The hotel doctor will know me, Rosemary replied. He examined my mother when we arrived. He sent me for medicine she needs. I want to see him. The doctor came downstairs. Here's the medicine for my mother, Rosemary said, holding it out to him. Your wife gave it to me. I've never seen you before, he said. You must be in the wrong hotel. She asked for the hotel manager who had put her in the taxi. Surely he would remember her. You must be in the wrong hotel, he said. Let me give you a room where you can rest. Then maybe you will remember where you and your mother are staying. I want to see our room, Rosemary said, raising her voice. 
It's room 505. But it was nothing like the room she remembered. It had a double bed, not twin beds. The furniture was black, not white. The carpet was green, not blue. There were someone else's clothes in the closet. The room she knew, knew had vanished. And so had her mother. This is not the room, she said. Where is my mother? What have you done with her? You are in the wrong hotel, the manager said patiently, as if you were speaking to a young child. Rosemary asked to see the police. My mother, our things, the room, they've all disappeared, she told them. Are you sure you are in the right hotel? They asked. She went to her embassy for help. Are you sure it's the right hotel? They asked. Rosemary thought she was losing her mind. Why don't you rest here for a while, they said. Then maybe you'll remember. I'd found that story, and I was kind of curious as to where it originated from. So in looking at it, this dates back, it looks like, to 1911. It was the basis for a 1950 movie called So Long at the Fair, and two novels. Hmm. One was published as early as 1913. Actually, 1889 was the first instance of it in a United States newspaper in the Detroit (laughs) Free Press. And then the next instance, as it reported as a true story, was in 1911 in the London Daily Mail. So both English-speaking countries. Yeah, and... So in the back of the notes, it the premise is basically that, which you don't get from the story. As a kid, I was always like, well, okay, what does it mean? Is the idea that her mother had died and rather than admit it because they were tourists, they had hidden the body and completely changed the room while she was out. It was something akin to the plague. So they didn't yeah. want it getting out that yeah. somebody had the plague <laughs> in the center of Paris. So everyone covered it up, even the local governments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's kind of interesting because it is... Again, it's the whole hostile idea that everyone's in on it except for you. Yeah. You're you're the one, the 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 patsy for all of this to go down. And that kind of ties into a lot of this type of horror that you see, which I mean I colloquially like to call like hell is other people. Because this kind of uh tourism horror is all based on other humans. So how, it's how very existentialist of you. Oh, right. <laughs> it, well, it's the, the antagonists in all of these kind of things that we've talked about are always other humans, like right. perfectly normal, average humans. So it highlights this more realistic approach to horror. And this isn't new. Cause as you mentioned, 1911, and there are plenty of seventies horror movies that did this played with this concept of like the scariest thing as other people too. Cause you have 1970 as soon the darkness 1971 in of the frightened people and 1973 don't look now are all like kind of three highlight examples of here's people going on vacation or going out somewhere and coming across a bad end due to other people. And you do see some newer ones too come coming in like again, like vacancy 2007, which is the one about the couple staying at the hotel that makes snuff films. Yes. Yeah. So this idea that there doesn't have to be anything crazy or out of the ordinary going on it's just other people are always the scariest thing you're ever going to face so i think that that's like it's a really interesting concept of like this the fears that we have is traveling it's right. just other people it's other people that, that yeah. yeah other people will be the scariest things you will ever encounter <laughs> it's true it's true but that isn't the only kind of kind of horror travel films that we really come across is it time for another flight? I think so. Are you right. ready to go? Yeah, let me stretch my legs a little bit. Okay. Let's go get um, a Jamba Juice or, okay. you know, some oh. sort of smoothie. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, we're not going to eat at the Chili's too. I know how much you want to do that. How bougie of you. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Here we go.
Are you ready for the hike of your life? Come travel the King's Trail in beautiful northern Sweden. Sweden. The Swedish Tourism Association invites you to visit the idyllic countryside and towering mountains, completely free of Jotun-worshipping pagan forest dwellers. No Jotun-worshipping pagan forest dwellers. That's right. Our next destination is 2017's The Ritual. That's right. Which, according to the IMDb description... A group of old college friends reunite for a trip to a forest in northern Europe, but encounter a menacing presence there stalking them. So this was directed by David Bruckner, who also did segments for Southbound and VHS, Mm -hmm. which are two of my favorite horror anthologies. Yes, and he also did a film called The Signal, which was one of his his first work, which is really good as well. I believe I've seen that that too. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And. Uh, written and also based on the novel by Adam Neville. Yeah, who did um, The Last Days, which it's a great book. I've read that one by Neville, and I really appreciated it. And he's also did The Reddening, which I'm reading right now. So I'm not sure how that's going. I'll have to tell you when I'm finished. <laughs> You'll report back on <laughs> I'll that I'll report one. back on yeah. that one. But he's a pretty good horror author. Like, I haven't read The Ritual, but I've heard that it, this film does depart from the book quite a bit in interesting ways. Hmm. So starring in this movie, we have... Uh, Rafe Spall, Spall, sorry, mm-hmm. <laughs> who plays Luke, mm-hmm. who was in Hot Fuzz. Yes. And The Big Short. Yeah. And also The Life of Pi. Yes. Yeah. And Luke is a kind of our main character in the, the film. And he kind of is brought to this journey of these friends taking through a lot of guilt, yes. which is a driving force through the plot of the film. So rounding out the, the friend group, we have Arshur Ali as Phil. Mm-hmm. Robert James Collier as Hutch, who is most notable from Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, yes. And we have Sam Trotton, Dom, who was in Alien vs. Predator. He was. And also the HBO Chernobyl miniseries. Yeah, yeah. Which, if you've seen, if you see a picture of Sam Trotton, you would know who he was. Yes. Just, it's he, one of those He faces. has one of those faces. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, and he is kind of some source of a lot of the friction in during the hike, for good reason. Like, I don't want to be like, he's an irrational character, but yeah. So it's these four friends that are going on a hike. And part of the reason they're going is to honor their friend who died the year before, because they were all getting together and they were deciding what they wanted to do as like a lad's weekend or a lad's trip. And his suggestion was to hike the, um, the King's trail. And he actually, he is murdered very kind of brutally before that gets to happen. So they choose to do this in his honor. I liked some of the other suggestions that they had back and forth with one another where they should go. Like one of them I really love was like, we should go to Belgium and it's like, nobody ever intentionally goes to Belgium. <laughs> it's like, this is the most boring suggestion. Why would you do that? And then also they got to say one of my favorite places to say the word is we should go to Ibiza. Ibiza. But they said that they were too old for Ibiza. Oh, well, I mean, maybe I guess that makes them definitely too old for Ibiza. So after the tragic event of one of the friends being killed, as you said, they decide mm-hmm. to honor him and go on this trip a year later. And so that's where we pick up next is they're already kind of into the trip mm-hmm. and they're picking back up. And then we've got Dom who gets injured. Yeah, yeah. because even they say they're like, we have to be careful of Dom. He's really not an out. He's not an outside kid. So listen, these guys are all obviously like. I think around our age, you're supposed to be around our age. So I can, 
I can empathize with all of the issues. Yeah, <laughs> none of them. I think it's Hutch that is the more level-headed one who's kind of has an idea of like, we have a compass, we can kind of like find our way no matter what. But the rest of them are not skilled hikers. So to do like a, a several day trip is an interesting, but I get it. You're trying to honor your friend. There's a lot of like layers to this scenario they're playing out. And of course, as they begin to travel the woods, there is the suggestion of a shortcut which you never, never, ever, ever take the shortcut. It's like no. they've never watched a horror movie. One character in the film actually says, and this is this is my favorite line. It's like, if it was really a shortcut, it would be the route. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, yes, exactly. So they go off of the trail kind of to get their friend back after he's injured. And then then all the spooky things start to happen at that point. Yes, we are seeing it from the perspective of Luke and the first night they decide to camp in this like creepy mm-hmm. cabin house that they found. And he obviously has has a nightmare. He's got a lot of trauma regarding this, you know, the death of their friend. So he keeps reliving that and has a horrible, horrible nightmare that kind of bleeds into reality. Mm-hmm. And then based on the, the comments that the other characters make, they are also having nightmares related to traumas that they've had. Yeah. And you don't kind of see a lot of the other character traumas, but this, this film slides very easily into the pagan folk horror kind of genre, which is a genre that I personally really love. Love like, it. <laughs> folk horror, I really enjoy. And like the pagan aspect is really well done, I think, in this one because it's so fascinating. This isn't a, this is a film that like elements of this this type of horror have been done before where you have a group of people in the wilderness that get lost. They encounter some sort of and supernatural elements because this is a definitely a supernatural story. And, but it all comes together so delightfully in this film that I really enjoy it a lot. And I think part of that comes from the fact that like, it's, it is, it's, it's a solid monster movie, but it's interesting is that it leans so heavily into the characters. Yes. This movie is a classic example of what you see in a lot of horror films, especially horror films where people go places and terrible things happen to them is just the group falling apart like the outside stimuli and experience just kind of rips at all of those tattered edges that they already have and everything comes to a head. Yeah. The tensions are already there. The situation just pulls them forward. And there's also this aspect, especially in this film where this idea that they were all college friends, but they've all moved on to different places in their lives. So it's really hard to maintain a friendship with someone when you aren't where you were when you first started to be friends. And I think that they, the director does a really good job of like kind of blending that aspect with these characters as well. So you kind of see them, the the fights that they're having are fights that you could see yourself having a lot of times with other people in your life, especially people that you were once close with and are no longer close with. Cause it's a lot of, you don't kind of understand me or you're always have been this way and you haven't changed or maybe you've changed too much in different ways. And I think that that's really kind of a neat way to frame a story like this with this being stalked by a monster in the woods. And that's the other great thing is that it's also a great example of not showing the creature until you need to, Yeah, like we get little like hints of it, little like sides of it. But all of whenever all the terrible things happen, we hear noise, we don't really see anything. And then we just see the person like all spatchcocked looking up in the tree. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, show don't tell in this until the end. And I think they do a great job when they're like, we're going to show the creature. And it's, it it makes the payoff all that much better. Yeah. It helps that the creature is 
really, really neat. And and that's also because probably because it's designed by the Keith Thompson, who was a an artist, a lead like designer on Pacific Rim and Crimson Peak and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. So he works with Guillermo del Toro a whole lot. So you get this kind of like... Who has incredible creature designs. Has incredible creature design on everything. So you come up with this big creature in in the film. It's called a Jotun, which are a kind of monster in Norse mythology. And Norse mythology has a lot of like really cool uh, monsters and creatures. And Jotuns were the giants. And of course, like you kind of see the name in Marvel's Thor movies is that, oh, like Loki was a Jotun or whatever. And but that's, of course, Marvel mythology, not actual Norse mythology. Right. They're most akin to like yeah, giants, tro- uh, trolls. Yeah, yeah, kind of the the big guys in, in that. And it's most often like translated as giants. But the kind of thing, interesting thing about this Jotun in, in particular is that in the film, they call it a child of Loki. Which, a bastard child of Loki. Yeah, which, I mean, but all children of Loki are bastards, because I don't... So, and the weird thing about Loki is, we're going to segue into the mythology portion of the show, is that Loki had several known children. Like, one was the giant wolf Fenrir, who bit off Tyr's arm, because he stuck it in his mouth, and maybe don't do that. And then... Lesson another, learned. As the other one is the baby he gave birth to, is Slepnir, the eight-legged horse. And then he has a daughter named Hel, who was kind of the goddess of death. So she's always depicted as being half alive and half dead at all times. So, yeah, okay, sure. Something like this could definitely have come out of Loki in some form or fashion. Because this Jotun is like a combination of like a giant horned creature of like a moose or an elk in some way. And a human because it's got hands it's got very human hands it's got a very human torso kind of rising from this big creature bulk and it's like a centaur kind of gone wrong it is it's like they took the body and it's like (laughs) all right we're gonna use a full human body and we're just gonna slap it upside down on the front (laughs) well and yeah and i think that actually like in reference photos and things that you see of both the creature and the design really resembles another mythological creature called the the knuckle of e which is a horse and human hybrid that's hold on Yes. Are you going to be a horror horse girl again? Yeah, I a know. Horror girl. Oh, groan. <laughs> yeah, you know I love my folklore horses. That's where we're because you're a horse girl. But this one is like a human horse hybrid. Also, it's usually depicted as a sea creature, a sea monster of some forth, some some kind. It originated in Norse mythology as well as part of that, and it's was kind of depicted as skinless, which would kind of explain some of the way that that creature looks in the film as well. But Nukalovies are really cool and also really terrifying, but they are a weird amalgamation of person and horse as well. So I can see that, I think that, if I were to wager a guess, I think that the designer was probably inspired by them in really cool ways. I'm happy about it. And that's been your horse girl corner for this episode. It's true, it's true. So they are picked off one by one Mm -hmm. until we have just left Luke and Dom. Yeah. Who are then taken to a village. Right. And at at this point, we do actually get to see what Dom's trauma is. We don't know what it was, but we get to see the person who is representative of the trauma. Yes. Yes. And so you kind of get an idea of what he's, what he is seeing in this because they take 
And it's interesting because both Dom and Luke have had the highest friction throughout the film. Cause as things unfold, you begin to see why Dom, why there's so much tension in the group is also related to the fact that when their friend was killed, Luke was present. And there is this idea of, could he have done more to prevent it? Could he not have done more to prevent it? And he clearly feels a lot of guilt about it, but is also very defensive about the situation. And then you also see that specifically Dom has blamed him for this. And the other characters, to lesser degrees, they're uncertain about the situation. So it comes down to the two of them. And we find out that the people that have taken them to this village worship the Jotun. And that's how you figure out what name, what his name is and like where it came from. And that they are going to sacrifice one of them, but the other one is chosen to join them. So I think that's a really interesting kind of concept there as you have to see two characters confront their trauma in different ways and what comes of it. And I, I just, I don't know. I like the concept of this. I like the idea that they are pulling people out and the Jotun has some criteria that we as the audience are not even really privy to. Yeah. But it makes you think about it because mm-hmm. the, the, the whole time watching it, even with my second watch through, I was like, what is it about Luke that makes him special that they mm-hmm. want to incorporate him into their society? Because as, as we're told in worshiping the Jotun, they are able to, they live longer beyond natural. They, yeah. They have immortality book, but, but it, it's, <laughs> it comes with a price. I'll just say that. I mean, nothing is ever a great deal. Let's put it that way. Especially not Norse mythology. No, no, you should just maybe not take them up on that deal. But so you kind of explore a lot of those things too in this and yeah, but what is it about him? And we can make a lot of guesses. Like, is it his guilt? Is it the possibility of his like quote unquote sin of not helping his friend? We don't know. It's never stated. And I think that's really interesting. Yes. That the film did that in this film. A lot of it is kind of this supernatural entity acting upon a group of travelers in some form or fashion and specifically from another culture most of the time or another part of a culture that they're not familiar with. But the monster kind of acts as a representation of their trauma. And you see that, I think, I think you see that a lot in this kind of horror film. Yes. And it does a good job of holding the tension at the end. It holds it till the very end. Yeah. And I think the the very last the like the last scene when he exits the forest and mm-hmm. he and it's the creature is roaring and he is just screaming back at yeah. it is so extremely cathartic yeah yeah and i think i think the closest thing to this film that you see in there is the descent like it, i think if you like the descent you will really like this film except that cuz they're very very similarly structured in that you have a group of friends that go to do a thing and in, of course, not maybe not to honor their dead friend, but they're doing it to pull their grieving friend out of her kind of grief. And in one case, it's a group of men. In another case, it's a group of women. But a lot of it's still the same. Like you still have the same tensions as these kind of situations arise. And of course, the monsters underground are a whole lot of yikes. And but I think they act for the same purpose. Is they're just the catalyst for a lot of these tensions to come up? Yeah, it's just. It's like what you see a lot in, in you know, certain like zombie movies is that the zombies are there just to be an external force to yeah. push the human drama along. Mm-hmm. And because there's a lot of different examples of that, because there's uh, a film, a kind of lesser known film from the 
mid, I think the late 2000s, called The Shrine, which is about a, a, a two journalists and a photographer go investigating a group of missing tourists in Poland. And you, again, learn, like, maybe you should listen to the locals in that case, because if they're warning you about something. But that's also another supernatural, like, travel movie where the tensions in the group lead to certain aspects happening and certain things going on. So it's a really common trope in these type of horror films, especially with travel horror. But I like it. It's For me, this is, like, even better sometimes than, like, the hell is other people. <laughs> oh, yeah, most certainly. You just that spark for that powder keg that's already there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's what the, the monster does, is it shows up and kind of shows you that dark side of yourself and shows you that dark side of the people that you love and you care about, and you have to face both of those things. And sometimes you don't make it out intact. Sometimes they don't make it out intact. And sometimes even if you do, you are irrevocably... <laughs> You are broken. <laughs> or yes. forever broken. Forever broken. I'm not going to try that word again. I mean, that was a good shot. I'll okay. give you that. I want to talk to, about something that is not related to the theme of the movie. Okay. Or the plot of the movie. Sure. But a pro- the one problem I have with this film. Okay. This would not happen on the King's Trail. <laughs> okay. So the King's Trail, or the Kungsleden, as it's called in Sweden is very well known, very well traveled, and it is giant. So to cover to do the whole the whole thing going at a regular pace, it would take you a month to do the entire King's Trail. Now, it's broken into sections that you can do, but even the most popular section, which is the shortest, is 105 kilometers, which would still take you 10 to 12 days. There is no shortcut. There is nothing that is going to be like, "Oh, It'll be makes more sense to do this because we'll get there way sooner. No, you may cut like a couple of hours off, but you're still looking at your foot. Your foot is fucked, dude. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you just need to deal with it. Like, yeah, yeah you're just going to deal with it. And also, OK, I want you everyone to know that he's pointing his finger at me. But like, you're just jabbing it at me as if I'm the one that made this movie. And you would like me to be aware of your grievances, air your grievances. Let's okay, do it. OK, this is the this is the last part. Okay. My last point with it. So along the King's Trail, with it being so popular, the Swedish Tourist Association, every 10 to 20 kilometers, mm-hmm. there is like these huts, cabins where you can stay the night. There's beds. You can buy food. There are 16 of those along the King's Trail. So there is never a long period of time unless you're going at a fucking snail's pace that you are not going to see other people. Remember, shortcut. I d- also, there's no mountains on the King's Trail. Like it is, it is pretty flat. There is a southern portion that they didn't finish that is less traveled that does have mountains, but not in the main King's Trail. And I'm done. Are you sure? Yeah. Yes. Yes. With this, I have other things, but I'm done with this. Okay. Okay. I mean, if you're sure, because we're gonna move on, unless you're absolutely like, you know, you got it out. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. I've got all of my anger out, and now I just have fun things. Okay. Yeah. Fun things are fun. <laughs> Let's go forward with that. Okay. So I wanted to see, since this would never happen on the King's Trail and the King's Trail is not haunted, I wanted to look up to popular haunted trails or well-known haunted trails here in the United States. And I found a couple. Your brain moves in such interesting ways to let's talk about Jotuns and giant creatures too. I'm going to make a list of haunted hiking trails. Well, we all know how I love, you got to be a horse girl, so I get to have a list. Touche. I want to argue that, but I can't. No. So the first one. You're so giddy. 
is the Black Diamond Mines in Antioch, California. So there's a preserve. It's located way out in the San Francisco East Bay. So there is a entity there, the Welling Witch, which haunts the mines. She was executed for failing to take care of her children, which led to their deaths. And there's also apparently um, another ghost, Sarah Norton, who was crushed to death by her carriage. So she hangs out at the nearby Rose Hill Cemetery to the preserve. That's the first one. Then there's Bloody Lane Trail in Maryland, which is a Civil War site where soldiers were killed, wounded, or missing at the Battle of Antietam. So it's only like it's only like a mile and a half route on that one. But people have reported, according to the Travel Channel, seeing ghostly soldiers both day and night, and phenomena including included witnessing balls of blue light, hearing drumming, gunfire, battlefield songs, and smelling gunpowder. So it's a pretty immersive haunting experience. Are you sure they didn't just wander in during a reenactment? Could be. Well, the orbs. Orbs aren't normally part of a Civil War reenactment. Have you ever been to a Civil War reenactment? I actually haven't, so I can't (laughs) say. Maybe 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 ghost blue orbs are part of that. Yeah, maybe. There's Chilnualna Falls Trail. It's in Yosemite Park, and it's an eight and eight and about eight and a half mile trail that passes Grouse Lake. Now, this one, as the legend goes, a young boy from a local indigenous tribe drowned in the waters, and you can still hear his cries. If you try to help him, he'll pull you under the water. Okay. So it's one of those situations. So leave drowning children alone. That's okay. So falls is in the name. So there is a waterfall. So if you stand too closely to that, there's an evil spirit named Pohono that will push you in. I mean, you shouldn't be close to the edge of a waterfall in a, like a national park anyway. But yeah, yeah, you shouldn't be close enough that someone can just push you in yeah. to anything. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one is actually regional, which is why I wanted to bring it up. It's the Ghost House Trail, which is in Big Ridge State Park here mm-hmm. in East Tennessee. And that one is known for a witch hanging and a brutal incident. There is a plaque at the trail that mentions the incident. Mm-hmm. What's noteworthy is that the trail's named for the Hutchinson family. Their daughter, Mary, she died of tuberculosis in the 1800s, and neighbors reported hearing cries and spotting ghosts long after the family left. People still hear her cries to this day and also phantom dog sounds from her dog. Oh. This has been your list corner. Wow. <laughs> because with your horse girl corner. Listen, mine was relevant. Mine was too. <laughs> well, going through all of those trails sure did wear out my legs. I think we might need to sit down. And take our next flight. What do you say? Let's go. Visit the beautiful Yucatan Peninsula. Yucatan Peninsula. Opulent resorts, beautiful beaches, exciting ruins, and certainly no carnivorous plants that mimic human sound. No carnivorous plants. Come to Mexico. No, Mexico. So we have tackled how terrible other people are and discussed our favorite thing, monsters. So now I guess it's time that we turned to the peril of Mother Nature herself. Yes. For this one, we are going to 2008's The Ruins. Yeah, this is a I this is one of my favorite horror films in a lot of ways. And I think it was in a lot of ways ahead of its time as well. So I'm really excited to be talking about it. 
So, from IMDb, a leisurely Mexican holiday takes a turn for the worse when a group of friends and a fellow tourist embark on a remote archaeological dig in the jungle where something evil lives among the ruins. How delightfully cinematic of you. Thank you. This film's kind of interesting because it's directed by Carter Smith, whose other biggest claim to fame are some Keith Urban music videos. Like he, he also did the 2019 Into the Dark episode, Midnight Kiss. Yes. Okay. There's that. And then it was written by Scott B. Smith, who also wrote the film A Simple Plan. And he wrote The Ruins first as a novel, but before he was finished with the novel, it had already been optioned for a film. Yes. Which is really interesting, too. And other than that, like, he's never written any other books but he has written a few other screenplays. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way that the whole way that this got made is so unique and weird that neither of these people have done horror before or really since since. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the into the dark. Yeah. I also the whole optioning a book into a movie before it's even hit. That seems so very a product of this particular time you had. I feel like you had a, a lot of, those type of things. I think, yeah, you get it sometimes still in a lot of young adult because everyone's kind of fi- trying mm-hmm. to find that next big franchise. So the next if, Twilight, the next Twilight, <laughs> the next Hunger Games, the next Harry Potter. We we see that a lot. So I think in this case, it was probably his work on some other films that had gotten him recognized, and also because the premise of this is really good. It is a great movie. I had forgotten how much I loved it until watching it again for the podcast. Yeah, it's great. But I also like how it is somewhat of a time capsule of the time period that came it, it came out yeah, in. Yeah, it is because this is an, an ecological horror film, which you don't get too many of, and you certainly don't get too many of them that are done well. Not to name any other one, but yeah, this film was ahead of its time. Audiences really, I don't think, were ready for this kind of story when the genre was kind of filling up with a lot of the torture porn at the same time. And this one, while I would mark it as body horror, I would not say that it's torture porn. I think that that is a good label to put on it. Yeah. Body horror is perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For this particular one. This film also has a a pretty decent cast too. Cause you've got, I mean, Jenna Malone, who we all know from the hunger games, the best person to play Joanna ever. Yeah. She was perfect. Nobody else could have done that. Mm -hmm. And she's also in Donnie Darko, which is a cult classic. And then she's in a recent horror film, the neon demon. And she's in saved, which is a great movie as well. Saved is such a good movie. Yes. And she plays Amy. mm -hmm. We have Sean Ashmore as Eric. And you may recognize Sean Ashmore. He is Iceman in the X-Men films. And he's also in another Weirdly enough, he's in another film in this same subgenre called Frozen, which is a great film that we'll touch on a little bit later, too. Yeah. And he plays he was Eric. And there's Jonathan Tucker, who was in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from 2003 and also in The Virgin Suicides. And he plays Jeff, who's a Amy's boyfriend and also a med student, which comes into play. And then we have Laura Ramsey playing Stacy, yeah. who is is Sarah in the Covenant, the hot witch boy movie that we both love. Yes, I do love the hot witch boy movie. The the kind of gay hot witch boy movie. It's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then rounding out the cast, you have Joe Anderson, who is in The Crazies, the remake of The Crazies, and also in Horns. And he's Matthias? Matthias. 
Matthias. I cannot pronounce names. Okay. I I put that one down phonetically. I looked okay, at them, yeah. when watching the movie. <laughs> Matthias is a German tourist they meet up with at the resort who is looking for his missing brother, which is the catalyst for all of this. So right from the beginning, there are so many red flags, so many alarms, so many warning signs that they should not do this. Like, I love that, you know, we're at the resort. They meet Matthias and he's like, oh, yeah, my brother went to this dig site. And um, he hasn't returned from the site because he was, quote, he's having too good of a time. It's like it's another situation. It's like he's never seen a horror movie before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he's having too good of a time at an archaeological dig that he's not reported back to me. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. uh, You know, I I can understand having too much fun an archaeological dig to go back to the resort but i don't think that's pretty standard for most tourists yeah but i'm also the person that when they got to see hadrian's wall was like they're doing a real archaeological dig guys i know you guys are taking pictures but i'm gonna go talk to the lady digging square holes i'll be back in a while but not everyone is my level of awkward nerd so he talks them into going, you know, out to the site to look for his brother and also just kind of check things out, these ruins out. Yeah. I may be getting old. Okay. But they talk that like staying an extra day at the resort and not going to look at these ruins would be the worst thing ever. And I'm like, no, well, like drink by the pool. You know? <laughs> no, we are old and that's why we think that's fun. But again, these are kind of college students that are either on summer break or spring break. It's never really determined, mm-hmm. but they are, one of them is going to leave, go to med school or is in med school. I think he's leaving for med school yes. and the rest of them are kind of about to embark on like kind of the adult life. So this feels a little bit like a last hurrah. There's some talk of like where these relationships, these romantic relationships are going in the future. There's this whole big setup and, these characters, what I like about this film is these characters start off as all very vapid and sort of party, party, party. But unlike the characters in Hostel who never move past that, I think these characters are have a little more depth to them as we see them fight to survive in this situation. Yeah, as the terrible things start to happen to them, especially with Amy. I mean, Amy, of course, is, is our point of view character. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to go like yeah. whenever they're setting out, you know, she's like, maybe I should just stay. And then that's something that gets brought up again, you know, towards the end is that she didn't even want to come here. But then I think the other, like, obviously we feel bad for all of them, but the other one that really got me is Stacy, like the way that she goes out. Like there's, yeah. Oh, there, there's a lot of kind of, and this film doesn't, I think this film takes the perfect amount of time to get you to set up these characters and their relationships and introduce you to Matthias and then introduce you to Dimitri, who's also his friend that's coming out showing them the way. And then you get to the archaeological site and you realize that it's not really an archaeological dig. It's just kind of some ruins out there. It's a temple. Yeah, it's, it's a temple and it's obviously abandoned. And when they step foot in it, they are confronted by a group of locals who are very specifically mentioned as Mayans because they do not seem to understand English or Spanish. And they are very obviously modern. This is not, they're not coming across a lost tribe or anything stupid or ridiculous like that. These are modern people who just happen to be living rurally and notice that there are intruders on this land. And we find out throughout the movie why they are in this area. (laughs) Yeah. So getting there, also, so many <laughs> red flags, alarm mm-hmm. bells, things that should have turned them off. So we've got 
it's not on a map. Right. They have to like draw a map and they even draw a map to leave for Dimitri's friends. Mm -hmm. We have a taxi driver who is like, fuck, no, I can't take you there. (laughs) Like, and then we have the older Mayan man that they run into who initially, even though they can't understand him, it's very clear that he wants them to leave. The path is covered. And then you've got your obligatory creepy kids that are, should tell you don't go to this place. Yeah. (laughs) And yet they step on the grounds of this temple anyway. Yeah. It does feel like very much like a red flag, but also I can I can understand the kind of heightened suspense of I don't understand what you are trying to tell me and I am interpreting everything that you're saying incorrectly. (laughs) I am making a mistake right now because it does come across originally as if this group is being hostile towards them and is threatening them. And they are, but not in the way that they think they are. It's a warning. Yeah. 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 And you can kind of see in the way the guy is like just the, the main kind of, I think leader of the group is gesturing towards them and things like that. And they are armed too, which I think definitely alarms our kind of group of American tourists, but again, not for the same reasons. So they do end up retreating up to the temple after one of their party is killed. And they of course don't understand why this happens either, but so they're up on the temple and the group of Mayans at the bottom will not let them leave. Yes. They're around the perimeter. And so that's when we try to figure out like, why are they trapping them here? Why are they keeping them here? So you think like, and you might think at the beginning of this, if you're starting to watch this movie, that this is some sort of film against like, Oh no, it's, it's pitting a group of people against a group of locals. But the film subverts that beautifully, I think too, in a way that it is definitely make sure that you as the audience understand as the story progresses, that's not what's happening. The way that it's revealed to us, what it, what the danger is in this movie. I think they do it so well. They definitely make it seem that this is not just some sort of weird, we're out to get you because you're Americans, which you see a lot in this genre too. So yeah, they are at the top of this, these ruins, and there is the remains of an archaeological dig there of kind of, well, they have opened the top of the temple to let like you kind of go in And that's when things start to go, uh, again, another version of sideways. Because up until at this point, nothing odd or strange has, like, happened, happened that couldn't be explained by human behavior. And then including where one of their party is injured, like, very grievously injured, and has to be pulled out because they fall through into the bottom of it. And then in that case, because they can hear a ringing cell phone. And... That again, where is the cell phone that's ringing? It sounds like a satellite phone because none of the rest of them have service here, but they're unable to find it. Someone is very badly injured and they get pulled up. And it's only through the course of this story progressing of being trapped on this. It's bad enough without any sort of like creepy ecological disaster elements at all. Because they don't have enough water to even Mm -hmm. sustain one person for a day. Yeah, They don't have enough food and they're just kind of out in the elements, mm-hmm. you know, and it, we, it, as it progresses, we see them looking more and more weathered based yeah, on what's happening. Yeah. Cause it, it's the heat and it, cause it, there's no rain, there's no, any, no shade, no way to get out of that. And they're kind of trapped there. And as they begin to understand that why there was a circle of basically salted earth around the temple and maybe why there was nothing growing for several feet around it, except these vines. And that I think is where the film really excels is this sort of like the idea that these vines, which don't look supernatural at all, 
they just look very normal and they're actually based off a lot of other carnivorous plants that exist in real life uh, according to some of the director that like we really studied kind of these things and granted nothing like this actually exists there's nothing <laughs> nothing you know i'm not trying to be like oh it's real cool that they like base them off real plants i'm like there's no actual plant that does this which most people know but i don't want people to be like oh did you hear her say that dumb thing yeah that plant is real but i mean it's very clear that it's not real because of one of the things that it's able to do and that is mimic sounds yeah so we find out that the phone that we've heard ringing through the entirety of the movie when they they go back down into the temple to try to retrieve it it's the flowers yeah. on these vines are able to mimic sound which is brings a whole other level into causing conflict for the group causing a lot of issues and really highlights that in this film it's kind of them against nature and not just these creepy plants but all of you know all of nature like the the sun the lack of shelter shade the lack of food and water and they're just kind of out there and so they have a choice of like do you die of exposure or do you die by this horrible plant and that i mean like man this is some good body horror that's and it's it's another like Again, they set this up very well too. like things that you wouldn't even think are going to be the impetus for this body horror happening. Like obviously like Matias's accident that leaves him wide open for it, but it's with Stacy and like the cut she gets. Yeah. Some of the the little things that happen in this too. And like, I'm not trying to do like too many spoilers for this film because I think it's really worth watching if you haven't seen it. There's a lot of like really good elements where you see someone, the, the idea again of not being able to escape from this thing happening to you and knowing that it's happening to you and you can't stop it is horrifying. Also the idea that you're seeing something inside of yourself that you have no way of getting to. And And that may or may not be there. Yeah. Is it real? Is it not real? Because there's a whole element of like, am I imagining these things because of this entire scenario. So you feel like there's something inside you, which everyone gets like the heebie jeebies and the creepy crawlies. So that is done really well as the story kind of progresses. And you see these characters fighting with the plants, fighting with the outdoors. And then as they start fighting with each other too, because again, people fall apart, people fall apart. And this is another, you know, idea that you see, that these outside elements are a catalyst for internal strife and conflict. And again, not to give too many spoilers, but I will say if you watch this film, it is worth watching all three endings. Yeah. There is the original ending and then the alternate ending, which changes the story. And then there's the deleted ending that they never put anywhere else, except you can think you can find it on YouTube that is, I think, a great, the best ending, I think, for it, too. It they're, kind of, they're all great in their own way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I really like the way that this film builds to the end. And you really sympathize with these characters a lot. So you're rooting for them, which I really like. Again, I like a movie where if you're going to give me some horror movie and you're going to kill people off brutally, I want to be able to feel emotional attachment to them. And I want to be rooting for them. I want them to live. And I think you get a lot of that with this film. Yes. They may start off as shitty kids getting what's coming to them. But by the end of it, you're like, no, I want you to make it. (laughs) Come on. You can do it. You can make it. And when they make those stupid decisions, you're like, oh no, like you're upset for them. And not just like you stupid kids. How dare you? How could you make this dumb decision? Because 
A lot of horror movies are built on stupid decisions, but I think this one is built on fewer stupid decisions than you see a lot of hey college kids movies. Well, at a certain point, there's not a whole lot of decisions that they're able to make. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that you see in a lot of the nature oriented movies of this type, because it really comes down to the fact that nature is unpredictable and thus scary. So being outside of our own norms of our, you know, what we expect on vacations and things like that, you have this inherent fear of that wild wilderness. The the only thing that is more unpredictable than other people is nature. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. true. And it's, I mean, you see that in a lot of films. Like we talked about Frozen, which is a about a group of kids that get trapped in the ski lift. They're trapped on a ski lift. So that one, as far as what they're fighting against is the elements, as far as the cold, the ice, the snow. And even like when they're thinking about, well, maybe we'll jump off of this. There's other elements. There's nature. There's wildlife you know yeah, um, yeah there are lots of things that can kill you outside <laughs> not not just the weather but also animals yes yes so open water is another good example mm-hmm. the one where there's a couple that go diving on a trip and they are doing it kind of this vacation to escape the tension of their marriage mm-hmm. and then they end up getting left behind in the water while on vacation and that one's just the two of them in open water that's it that's the movie that's the entire movie yeah yeah and the shallows is another good one. I love that one. Uh, Blake Lively getting chased by a shark. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but you have professed your love for it multiple I times. I did not think I would like it. I have a friend who watches any shark or shark adjacent horror movie. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, I'll watch this with you. And I, and I was like, oh, this this is good. <laughs> I yeah no I like you and your shark movies and I was like maybe I'll just pass on that and you were like no it's so good you have to see it we'll watch it it. we'll watch it another one in sort of in the same vein is called Backcountry which is about a couple that end up getting chased by a giant bear also on a hiking trail so there's a lot of this kind of hiking and camping movies it's called Backcountry Backcountry Back I think not (laughs) I was gonna say it's called no it's not a Horace Thompson movie Backcountry but it's about a bear I don't yeah no I don't like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's about a couple that ends up being stalked by a bear in the wilderness. I think a lot of it with nature also, it's the unpredictability of it, especially in the world that we live in, the modern world where we have control over so many aspects of our life. But I think a lot of it is probably um, genetic. Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? What is the term? Like, um, is it genetic trauma or hereditary trauma where it's things that have happened to like our ancestors that are passed down to us? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Me- are you talking about like memetic, like memory sort of thing? Is, yes. I yeah. can't think of the term for it, but yes. I mean, we come, f- we are a species that came from having to fight for our lives. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of that is still ingrained in us. Even yeah. In the modern age. Well, yeah. Like yeah. the fear of the dark, the fear of the kind of like wide open spaces of being very vulnerable in them too. And I think a lot of really good cinematographers can do a great job evoking that terror with just a few wonderful camera shots. Yeah. And I applaud them. I think they do a great job. So yeah, you, you see a lot of that in these movies of just nature is really scary. Yes. Let's just not fuck with it. And on that note, maybe we should get out of these woods. Okay. I'm tired from all this traveling. Okay. Can we go back home? I guess, but we still have some things to talk about. All right. Let me just sleep on the way. Okay.
well. I am refreshed. I am pumped. Let's keep going. I mean, you snored the whole way, so I am <laughs> I'm dragging you? a little. How dare you? I don't snore. Are you sure about that? So we've explored hell as other people, as you like to call it. <laughs> the supernatural aspect of things that could happen to you when you're traveling and then just nature, nature herself. Mm-hmm. What is it that we love about this particular theme? Why do we keep coming back to this? Why do we keep making these stories? Well, I think that it's a, first of all, it's like a really complex question. And I think a lot of it. Answer it all right now. (laughs) All right now. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with our, our specifically as Americans, our kind of cultural identity and our uh, fear of unknown places and unknown cultures. Yes. That again, when we were talking about hostile and, the story that I read from scary stories, mm-hmm. I was in like, I was like, I need to know where this originated from because in the back of my mind, I knew it came from stupid Americans. <laughs> it's a certain, I feel like a certain amount of like xenophobia is built into our culture. Mm-hmm. And that's why we see so many of these stories depicted from an American point of view. And thankfully in Roth's case, he showed how terrible we were. Yeah. If you look at a lot of these films and this may just be our sample size, but even as I was researching some stuff and looking for kind of some tourism horror films, I kept finding out that most of them were produced and made by like Americans, the Brits and the Australians. Those are kind of the three groups of people. White English speaking. countries. Yeah. The white English speaking countries where you see this the most and you don't see it in a lot of foreign language films. And I may be mistaken. There could be one out there, but I don't know of any horror movies that show specifically made from the perspective of a, a foreign tourist coming into America and having anything like this happen to them. And if, there is are there are those films out there. I would love to see them. Yes. So I hope that someone has recommendations for me. But this concept of, oh, my God, scary foreigners are doing things to me, I think is as American as apple pie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I think that's where Hostel really shines is by showing that Americans are the worst. They're the most arrogant and the most entitled. And they come in and act like they're owed all these things more than any of these other films do by just highlighting how like. God, Americans are the worst. And there's a reason that we have a reputation for being terrible travelers. It's because it's true. It's true. We can yeah. say that because we are them. <laughs> I mean, we're not terrible travelers. We're, we're, we're Americans. We're Americans. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, and I think that's kind of the, the tide to it is that Americans go in to other countries based on our culture and expect us to be almost catered to. Yes. And we expect these experiences to go exactly the way we want. So anything going wrong is terrifying. And of course it is terrifying in a lot of degrees to go to another country where you may not understand the language entirely, where you may struggle with some of their cultural norms, but a whole lot of these movies highlight the fact that when you go into a situation pretending, you know, better than everyone else in the situation, you end up in some kind of trouble. You're setting yourself up for mm-hmm. failure. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good point. It's just, um, you know, the whole thing like bullies, bullies are bullies because they're afraid of, you know, of being made fun of and that mm-hmm. type of thing. It's, I think it's the same thing with this. There's a certain amount of this fear that's couched in our own fear of our own ignorance of other cultures yeah. and not wanting to show that weakness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we go into the situations and I think a lot of these films highlight the kind of unfortunate aspects of 
Americans and English speaking people while traveling as well, because you do have that kind of locked in is how many of these films are based on some sort of culture clash of someone going in and not understanding how or why locals do things and ignoring these basic don't do this thing. Don't do that thing. Don't go there. Like I'm, I don't want to drive you here because it's a bad idea. And instead of listening to those things, we're just like, no, we're going to do it anyway because we know better. You mean the common theme of transgression? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. You transgress. And then, which I know is your favorite thing because what's your favorite thing in these type of horror movies? My favorite thing in these type of horror movies is when shitty kids get what's coming That's to them. That's right. That's right. I've heard so many, those shitty kids got what's coming to them rants as we were doing the research for this episode, which is it's quite enjoyable actually. But I think that's part of it. And I also think that part of it is this idea of Americans being xenophobic and being afraid of the other mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But some of that too I want to touch on it. I think it's tied to class differences as well. Yes. Because how many of these films show the lower classes in another area and another country and also in our own country, because some of these films, when you travel from one, like there are horror films where you travel from one part of the U S the other part of the U S and you end up in the wrong side of town or the wrong side of the tracks. And you see like lower class people, being portrayed as dangerous and only out to get you at all times. And I I think that even extends to even beyond horror movies. You see that in a lot of things like Mm -hmm. I think the best examples of this that you'll see and it's easy to find online is how in American films we portray like Middle Eastern countries. Yeah. Like the yellow filter that we throw on everything to make it look like it's dirtier and, and like sunbaked and worse than it is. Yeah, yeah. We do that in our filmmaking in a lot of ways, and we definitely do it. And even in Hostel, you see it too, where the locals are are portrayed as like grifters, and especially the people that were the, there's like a, a roving band of street kids that are portrayed as just- Dirty street urchins. Dirty street urchins that are inherently violent. Yeah. And- For bubblegum. Yeah, for bubblegum. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like an absurd thing, but it's still- playing into that stereotype and you see the idea of like the in the ruins the rural mayans who again are dressed modernly like show up and then you have them be at first seen as this antagonistic group who doesn't speak your language and they must be some sort of like quote-unquote you know dangerous people and i think that that is like really important to touch on because then you get films that show this inherent bias without being quite aware of it. Because there's this movie called Eden Lake that stars Michael Fassbender. And he and his girlfriend go on a camping vacation in a lake in somewhere in the UK. And I'm not really sure, but it's a rural area. And they run afoul some like really shitty teenagers that are shown to be lower class. And it's, I think the best, like the way that it was described as hoodie horror Oh, hoodlums. Yeah, Yeah, the hoodlums Mm -hmm. and that kind of like, but it's a reflection of kind of a lot of a a trend in in UK cinema to portray lower class as being rough and brutal because the whole thing is it shows is that like, yeah, these lower class kids who torture this couple physically and emotionally are kind of shown to have learned it from their parents as the film progresses. So you get like this horribly brutal torture porn film 
that's basically like you can't trust these like these dirty poor kids that that's what it comes out to so yeah again the hoodlum the hoodie horror that kind of thing that you see a lot of that and and it's not just i mean i don't want to be like oh it's just britain that has the problem you see a lot like class issues come up a lot in horror and even in like wolf creek the australian one which has got the psychotic old man that lives in the middle of the wilderness and butchers backpackers like that's he's shown as being low class and crude and dangerous for those things well and i think another good example of that is um like the horror comedy uh tucker and dale versus evil like that is a really good example of like judging people who you think are are lower class than you as being inherently evil. <laughs> yeah. And th- that film is really great commentary on mm-hmm. that trope with the hillbilly horror kind of thing that you see a lot of, and it's not just in like tourism movies, but I think it's really highlighted in this particular subgenre of horror. Yes. That you, you see a lot of it. So yeah, I, I love Tucker and Dale and that is a great, <laughs> that is a great like horror comedy about, like uh, going on a trip, going on spring break. So I, we will revisit that movie. Yeah. In depth for yeah. sure. There's a lot of, um, cabin in the wood movies, including cabin in the wood and also evil dead that are very good to talk about, to kind of deconstruct some of these kind of tropes and things you see in a lot of this. And I would definitely like to go further into depth into all of those too. But yeah. There's a lot of it. Like even, the idea of a uh, wrong turn, the wrong turn franchise is based on it's more hillbilly horror, hillbilly yeah. horror. You see a young woman traveling alone who ends up getting attacked and dragged off into the woods by inbred rednecks. And yeah, that's a thing that you see a lot. So I think that's what one of the appeals of these type of horror films are is that these things scare us. The idea of going to a place and facing an unknown threat because you don't know what you're going to experience. You can't plan for everything when you travel. So in order of things that are scary, we have other people, Mm -hmm. we have nature Mm -hmm. and we have our own fucking inherent biases. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That is the scariest thing I think you can say about this. So that is our, our synopsis is that Americans are terrible and no, no, (laughs) I mean, that's a takeaway that you could certainly make from this is that we just I think that's what makes horror interesting is because you get to play with some of these inherent biases and kind of tweak them and do fun things with them in the case of Hostel and in the case of the ruins and that kind of thing, too. And then you have films that take it very seriously, like Teresa's, which is literally like we pick on rich Americans because they're rich Americans. And that's every rich American's fear is like pearl clutching of why would you why would you want to hurt me? I didn't do anything to you personally. So, you know, so there's this idea behind that, that plays into these fears that we have. I'm, I'm interested to see kind of how this morphs and what happens in with this particular thematic, this particular thematic element as um, people co- become more class conscious as yeah. they are. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that right we now are. and I'm eager to see what films come out of that instead of ones like, the hunt is one that kind of tried to do that, but I, the not hunt, very well. Um, yeah, yeah. The that's hunt, all I'll say on that. The hunt me. was a choice. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. I gave it a chance. It was a choice. We, we watched that together we and we were like, what? Yeah. But yeah, I think there are films that are far more aware of that and, and have working towards it. And you can see, 
bits and pieces of that in things like Tucker and Dale, which yeah. is delightful. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it immediately. But that that's a lot of it. Yeah. I'm really curious to see where that's going to go too. Yes. Mm-hmm. And as always, if anybody has any other examples of this theme or this trope that they would like to throw out at us, please let us know. Yeah, we, I, again, we love watching movies. We want to watch more movies. We do. We do love like love recommendations. I love recommendations. This was our 10th episode. It was our 10th episode. And on that, if you've been with us from the beginning, or even if you're a new listener, if you could please rate and review us on Apple podcast or whatever service you use, it means the most on Apple podcast. I'm not going to lie. That's the (laughs) one that means the most. So if you could rate and review us and also if again, we love feedback. So you can email us at culturecryptids at gmail.com or hit us up on our Twitter. We like to be very active on our Twitter and on our Instagram. If, if people want to engage with us. Yeah. Um, please reach out to us. Let us know you're listening. And it means the world to us that someone just wants to listen to us. Be very excited about this thing that we love. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, passports put away. Bags are unpacked. You probably need to go get some rest since I snore so much. So, I mean, you can be hateful about it, but that's just the truth. Let's return the rental car and go home. Okay. All right. Culture Cryptids is written, produced, and directed by me, JD. And me, Corey. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Culture Cryptids. Questions, comments, corrections, hate mail? Email us at culturecryptids at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>